Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's God's word. You may be seated. Today we're continuing our series called Scandalous, where we're looking at some of the more shocking sayings of Jesus. And uh, I think that is part of what makes Jesus so interesting and so compelling. When you, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, these accounts of his life, is how extreme Jesus is in the things that he says. He is totally extreme. And I think scandalous is an appropriate kind of thing. Things that when you read them, if you're ever reading through the Gospels, and if you, if you haven't gotten to know the story of Jesus, if you're exploring Christianity, that's the place to start is, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Get to know Jesus. And as you read his words, you will oftentimes find yourself thinking, did he really mean that? Is that what he meant? Really? Seriously? Huh? And, and you'll sort of go, man, is there a footnote? Is there another explanation? Uh, Jesus' words are often very extreme. For example, uh, one thing we'll talk about in, in a few weeks is Jesus said that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That's very different. That's very extreme than sort of how we naturally flinch. We flinch towards hate our enemies. And we barely even pray for our friends, let alone pray for our enemies. For those who persecute us, we don't do that. He's extreme. He says if someone's going to strike you in the face, uh, turn to him your other cheek so they can strike that one too. He says when somebody asks you for your coat, give them your shirt also. He says if somebody forces you to go one mile with him, go a second mile with him. That'd be a good name for a church. I should write that down. <laughs> Just kidding. He, he has extreme things to say about forgiveness, right? So they come to him and say, well, Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Like up to like seven times I should forgive somebody for something? And his answer functionally is every time. You forgive every time. Is that extreme or what? I mean, you feel like, well, but wait, wait, wait. Isn't there like eventually a time when you go, I can't forgive anymore? No, every time, he says. It's extreme, his teaching about divorce was so extreme, you can read it in Matthew 19, that, that at the end, when he's done saying it, the response that he gets from the people there is like, here's exactly what they say. They say, well, if that's true, then it would probably be better to never get married. And, and Jesus doesn't go, oh, well, wait, wait, guys, you didn't understand me. He goes, yep. He just I mean, it's extreme, and there's not a ton of explanation, and it raises lots of what-ifs, and you kind of want to go, man, what, is this? what does this mean? And, and I think this is one of the ways that we know that the words of Jesus in Scripture are true. It's because they're so extreme, and they're so countercultural, and they, and they run so uh, counterintuitive to how we normally think that they must be true. I mean, if you were sort of going to make up a bunch of stuff so that people would, would follow you and you would develop this really great following of people who were attracted to everything you had to say, you wouldn't come up with this. You wouldn't say, love your enemies. You would say, round up your enemies and crush them. 
That would win a crowd, right? You wouldn't say pay your taxes. You'd say don't pay taxes, right? But when they come to Jesus and, and their taxes are by an, a Roman occupying army and they say, should we pay taxes? Right? If you were making it up, you'd go, no, don't pay taxes. Rebel against the authority. But he doesn't. He says, no. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But give to God's what's God's. Both of which are extreme statements. Jesus is extreme. And I think the reason he's so extreme is because he's trying to get us to see the world differently. He's trying to get us to see the world as he sees it, to see it as it actually is. And that's why so much of what he says just runs counter to our natural flinches. And today, we're going to look at a, at a very extreme uh, uh, saying of Jesus, an extreme paragraph here in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, related to heaven and eternal life and entering the kingdom of God and, and who gets saved and, and how do you know if you're a Christian. And he's going to say some very extreme things about that. And just know, this is Jesus trying to help you see the world as it is. That's what he's about here. Now, there's some background you've got to understand if you're going to understand this passage today. Um, and it's really related to the whole, uh, whole idea of Scripture. It is, if you're going to get this, you've got to understand this idea. That God is holy and he expects holiness from people. God is holy and he expects holiness from people. So holy means that God is separate. God is set apart and specifically set apart from sin. Uh, God is set apart from unrighteousness. God is set apart from injustice. God never sins. He's always righteous. He's always good. He's always holy. His holiness is beautiful and it's good. And so everything about God is, is good and right and perfect. Not a, not a, not a shred of un, unrighteousness in him. All holy, perfectly holy. And he, that's what he expects of people that he's going to relate to. If God is perfectly holy, um, he can't relate, or not that he can't, he chooses not to relate to people who aren't totally holy. Well, that creates some issues, right? Because there's no one alive who's perfectly holy. And yet this is God's expectation. So you have to understand uh, some things about what God expects of his people as it relates to who he is. So let me just put some verses up on the screen. We'll go through these fairly quickly. In Leviticus eleven forty five, he says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And that phrase, you shall be holy, for I am holy, that appears over five times. It appears a bunch of times in Leviticus. Uh, be holy because I'm holy. God's saying, this is what I'm like. You were made in my image. You should reflect this. You should be holy. You should be set apart from sin. You should be righteous. You should be just. You should be merciful. Wow. Especially in light of what it says at the beginning, that he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He redeemed them. He rescued them from the slavery that they were in there in Egypt. Uh, King David writes this in Psalm 15. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? God, who's going to have access to you? Who's going to relate to you? Who's going to have relationship with you? Who is it? Answer is verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. It's the idea of God expecting holiness. The Apostle Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 1. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy 
in all your conduct. How much? All. All. So holiness is not like a pick and choose. I choose to be holy here. I choose to be unholy here. It's, it's comprehensive. That's what it means. To be totally set apart from sin. And what is the reason Peter gives? He quotes Leviticus. He says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5.1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Those of you who are parents and grandparents, you know that kids take on your family resemblance, right? If they're biological children, they often look like you. And either way, they take on your attitude and your mentality and your culture and your beliefs and your responses to stuff, right? I mean, there's a family resemblance. You can get to know someone and go, yeah, they're, they're, they're chip off the old block kind of thing, right? People see my kids all the time and go, those are your kids, no doubt. And what Paul's saying here is, as children of God, you need to be imitators of God. You need to have a family resemblance. And what is the family resemblance? God is holy. So we're to be holy. And he goes on into that in chapter 5 of Ephesians. The author of Hebrews gets up on this theme. In Hebrews 12, he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Talk about extreme. That's extreme. That's saying that if you're not holy... You will not see the Lord. God will not, right? Who's going to dwell on his holy hill? Those who are blameless. Those who are holy. Those who are righteous. And this is one of the themes of Jesus here in the place where we pick up in, in Matthew. Uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're looking uh, right towards the end of this sermon as Jesus is concluding it. Uh, but all throughout it, Jesus is talking about this theme of, of that we're to be holy as God is holy. And so in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You get the theme here? It sounds just like David in Psalm 15. Who's going to see God? Who's going to have a relationship with God? Those who are pure in heart. And that gives us an insight. That gives us a window into Jesus. And especially into this sermon and the context that we pick it up here in is that Jesus is talking not about outward holiness. Like the outward appearance, the outward look of obedience and compliance and being moral and being righteous. and that, Not the outward stuff, the heart. Do you see that? Blessed are the pure in heart. And his specific audience, uh, to a large degree, in this particular uh, sermon in Matthew 5 through 7, are religious people. They are people who are outwardly holy, outwardly compliant, outwardly moral. He's not talking in this sermon primarily to uh, people who are obvious, uh, horrible sinners. He's talking to religious people. And so in Matthew chapter 5, he's saying, listen, uh, here's what the, the Old Testament has taught you, but you need to understand this teaching goes even deeper than you realize. And in chapter 6, he's going to uh, say, listen, don't be like the hypocrites who pray on street corners to be seen by people and who make a big show of their giving and their tithing and their fasting. Like, don't be like those people. So he's, he's not, do you get this? This is really key. He's not saying, don't be like those irreligious pagans. Be a moral person. That's not his message. His message is, don't be like those hypocritical religious people. Be pure in heart. 
That's why in Matthew 5.20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's an extreme statement, because these people hearing it would have thought the scribes and the Pharisees, those are the most serious people about God. Those are the most religious. They have it best. This, the way they felt hearing that is how you would feel if I said, unless your righteousness exceeds Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's serious, isn't it? That's extreme. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So that's the context of this sermon. The immediate context we pick up in uh, chapter 7. Uh, verses 13 and 14 talks about that we should enter by a narrow gate. There's a, a, a way that's wide and a, a gate that's wide that leads to destruction. Many people find it, but you should enter by the narrow gate. Uh, there are few who find that. Uh, just before the passage we're reading, he talks about the importance of bearing fruit, that you know a tree by its fruit. You know if someone's a false teacher or a false believer uh, on the basis of the fruit of their life. A, a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree doesn't grow good fruit. You know a tree by its fruit. And so his point here today, and this is what we've titled our message, is not everyone's getting to heaven. Not everyone's getting, or into heaven, if you read it all as one word. There's no space on the... It's going to drive some of you nuts. You're like, I didn't even notice that. Now I'm not going to be able to look at anything else. That drives me crazy too. Not everyone's getting into heaven. Here's what Jesus is going to show us in these three verses. He's going to show us who's not going to enter the kingdom, who is going to enter the kingdom, and how to know if you are going to enter the kingdom. That's what he's going to talk about. And you're going to go, man, that sounds a bit extreme. That sounds a bit arrogant. Like, you might even look at me and go, Luke, how on earth could you say, like, this is who's not going to heaven. This is who is going to heaven. And here's how you can know. Like, who are you to say that? Here, here's the thing. I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I, I'm, I'm the messenger, right? They respond to Jesus at the end of chapter 7. It says they were astonished at his teaching in verse 28, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Listen, I come like the scribe. I don't have the authority. My only authority is Jesus' words himself. So if you want to take issue with it, take, words, take issue with him. This is Jesus. This is what he's saying. And I hope you'll see, even as we talk through this, I want to be faithful to the text. I want to be faithful to what Jesus is saying. So who's not going to enter the kingdom? Who's not going to? Uh, the first thing uh, that we'll say, we'll actually pick up four observations here from this passage about who's not going to enter the kingdom. Many people are not going to enter the kingdom. You might even say most people are not going to enter the kingdom. In verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So get this, there's a lot of people in the world who would not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Lord the word Lord means master. They wouldn't acknowledge that. He's not even talking about them. He's talking about of the people who would acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, even, not all of them are going to go to heaven. So that means most people in the world and even many people among those who would acknowledge him. How do we know many? Well, he says in verse 22, he says, on that day, that's judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't, didn't we do all this? That should sober us greatly. Jesus does not say, a couple of people will come to me and say, 
Lord, Lord, didn't we? Didn't we do this? He says, many. That's why before this, he had said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. I don't know everyone's heart here, and I can't, you know, kind of go around and go, oh, you're going to heaven, you're not, you're going to heaven, you're not. I don't know that. The Lord knows that. But it seems like if he were having an audience of people at church, he might be inclined to say, many among us here today will have on that judgment day a surprise. Didn't, Jesus, didn't I, didn't I do, didn't I? He'll say, I never knew you. So many people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so I say that uh, trembling. We, we should take this very seriously. Uh, this is not then a message to go, man, I wish so-and-so was here. I got to make sure I tell them about the podcast. This is one to go, I got to listen. I got to pay attention. Jesus is talking to me. I got to know, am I one of these people? So many people will not enter the kingdom uh, second thing, uh, some who have correct beliefs will not enter the kingdom. Some who understand correct things about Jesus will not enter. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, is Jesus Lord? Amen. Yes, he is, right? Uh, can you enter the kingdom of heaven if you don't acknowledge that Jesus is Lord? No. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. He's Lord. If we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. What he's saying here is just acknowledging, and the word say is very important. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So you can have correct beliefs about Jesus. You can believe that he's the Son of God. You can believe he was born of a virgin. You can believe he lived a perfect life. You can believe he died on a cross and rose again and is ascended and is coming back. You can believe all those things. And you know what James says in chapter 2? He says, even the demons believe. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So congratulations. You have, enough, you have as much faith as a demon. Right? That's not, a, that, that's not it. So just acknowledging it, having that belief, having that intellectual agreement that that's true, not enough. Even if you have that with zeal, right? Notice that it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 Lord. It repeats it twice. Even to go, I, I really believe that. And I've, and I've been an apologist for it. And I've you know, been on, on websites reading about this. And I talked to my friends to prove that this is true. You can believe it's true. And not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's getting more sobering, isn't it? Here's the third thing. Some who have done powerful spiritual works will not enter the kingdom. It just, you just feel it like it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter. That, that gate is getting narrower and narrower and narrower, right? You feel that? Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, right, not a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? Didn't, didn't we do all that? Right? To prophesy means to, to speak a spiritual message. To deliver truth uh, from God. And so, uh, specifically for us, that would be 
talking about the scripture. Uh, in, in those days, when they didn't have the New Testament completed, it was speaking a message about God. He's saying, you can speak a message about God and it might even be right. Didn't I, Lord, didn't I do that? Listen, there's all kinds of examples in the scripture of people who proclaim true messages about God um, whose hearts weren't yielded to him. So Balaam is an example in, in the book of Numbers of someone whose heart is not yielded to God at all, but he speaks some truth about God. God even uses Balaam's donkey to speak truth. So to go, man, I said some true stuff about God. I was right. I delivered the message. Well, okay, you're as good as a demon and you're as good as a donkey now. I don't know if that, I guess that's improving. But it's not enough, right? This is very sobering for me. I stand up here every week and I prophesy in his name. I explain spiritual truth in his name. And at the last day, I will not be able to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I teach the Bible for you? Didn't I even teach this very passage? That in and of itself. You've taught the Bible, that you know the Bible, you've told other spiritual things. Not enough. Whew. Keeps going. Cast out demons in your name. Did, did, did we not cast out demons in your name? All right, show of hands here. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you have ever cast out a demon in Jesus' name? Okay, I want to talk to you guys that have. Okay, a couple hands went up. There weren't any at the first service. I never have. Right, it's clearly a very rare thing. And this is saying that even doing that thing, which is so rare, is not in and of itself enough. Right? The, the, the work, the spiritual powerful work of this is, is not any indication that you have relationship with, with God. There were all sorts of people in Jesus' day who cast out demons by other names. That's why they came to him and say, doesn't he drive out demons by Beelzebul? And he says, well, who do, your, uh, who do the Jewish people drive them out by? Right? Because other people were casting out demons. In Acts 19, it says that the sons of Sceva, who are basically these guys always looking to sort of use some kind of spiritual power, they're casting out demons, don't have any relationship to Jesus at all. And then he says, did we not do many, many mighty works in your name? That word mighty works is the idea of, uh, we would call it miracles or a supernatural displays of power. Did we not do that? I mean, are any of you like regularly doing many miracles? Probably not. Most people don't. Even that doesn't prove you have a relationship with God. You, a great example of this would be in the Exodus. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And he goes, well, fine. And he does a miraculous sign. And then do you remember what happens? It's really confusing as you read it. The, the, the magicians of Egypt match him. And they're able to do almost everything that he can do. And yet they do it not connected at all in relationship to God. So the ability to speak a great message, the ability to have spiritual power over demons and impressive power over nature, not enough. He says, then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, if the devil can keep a man outside the kingdom by making him say, Lord, Lord, he will certainly make him do so. 
He will do anything to keep a man outside the kingdom. So if a false belief or a true belief held in the wrong way will do this, he will make him have it, and he will give him power to work signs and wonders. You know what he's saying? He's saying the enemy of your soul, Satan, he doesn't care. He, he just wants you to be uh, separated from Jesus in terms of relationship. So if he can do that by making you very, very bad and believing all the wrong things and, and not acknowledging God, fine. If he can do that by making you outwardly spiritual, outwardly religious, you know all the right stuff, you're involved in all the right activities, spiritual power is going through you, but you're not connected to Jesus, he's fine with that. He just wants you to not be connected to Jesus. And if he gives you spiritual power to do that stuff, he might do that. What this is, here's what he's saying in verse 22. There's all these people who have substituted activity for relationship. They've substituted spiritual action for personal, intimate relationship, right? Because that's what he's going to say in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Which, which clearly, he's not saying, like, I didn't even know you existed. No, he's saying, we didn't have a relationship. I don't know. You, you did all this stuff in my name, but it, it wasn't connected to me. It's activity instead of relationship. And, I, and, I, and I'm afraid for people, um, even in our church now, and I don't have anyone particular in mind. I just, I just know how, how easy it is to confuse activity for God with relationship with God. Right, right. Some people, they are so busy working for God that they never have God work in them. And they do it as a way to give themselves an assurance or a confidence that God's really at work. But, but when it's time to pray, when it's time to really pour out their heart to God, there's not much there. But when the lights are on and people are looking and there's stuff to do and there's a job to be done and there's a roster to have my name on, I'm there. And I substitute activity for relationship. Jesus is saying when you do that, you don't have confidence that you're going to enter heaven. Then here's the last group that he talks to. This is all, it's all one group, right? These are all descriptions of the same group of people who's not going to heaven. All who are workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. In verse 21, he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, one of the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So the one who does the will of the Father will enter heaven. The one who's a worker of lawlessness won't. Now, remember the context, because we would think when you hear worker of lawlessness that he's talking to like really rebellious people. These are workers of lawlessness. He must be referring to you know, the rapists and the murderers and the swindlers and all that stuff. That, that, that's not who he's talking to at any point in this sermon. He's talking to religious people who have the law but apply it at a surface level. The law, the, the truth of God never gets to the heart. And so what are they? They're workers of lawlessness. They're doing these actions. They're external. They're outward. People can see them. There's even a great deal of some kind of power at work in it. But in their heart, the truth hasn't sunk in. Maybe they're doing it for themselves. Maybe they're doing it with, with wrong motives. We don't know exactly. But Jesus calls these workers 
of lawlessness. Remember what he said in Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. Here's how uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. I, I think this is a helpful paraphrase. He says, knowing the correct password, this is, how he, this is the whole passage kind of in his own words. Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. I can see it now, the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preached the message, we bashed the demons, our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. That's sobering, isn't it? That's extreme, isn't it? I mean, we would think, man, if anyone's going to do all that good stuff for God, God owes it to them. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, I don't need a bunch of people to do a bunch of stuff for me. What I want is your heart. I want you to do all kinds of good for me, but I want you to do it because I have your heart. I tell you what, as a leader of a church, this is sobering. And as I've already said, I will not get to go before the Lord and say, Lord, Look at this church I planted. Look at all this ministry that happened around us. Look at all the leaders I raised up. Look at the messages I preached. It doesn't matter if I don't know him. I've got to know him. The Apostle Paul, after quoting his resume, says, it's all rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. That's what this is about. So that's who's not going to know him. Who is going to enter the kingdom? Well, clearly the one who knows him. The one that, that does have a real relationship with Jesus. And how is that relationship with Jesus obvious? It's obvious by verse 21. Uh, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. This is not necessarily doing all sorts of spiritual activity, though that's part of it, but it's doing it um, for the Father, because of the will of the Father. Knowing the Father's heart, out of love for Him, it's obeying Him. Those who are not workers of lawlessness, those who have allowed the truth of God to penetrate their hearts and change them. Those who, in the words of Romans 6, are obedient from the heart. Paul there is talking, he's talking about uh, there are slaves of sin, there are slaves of righteousness. And he says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. How does that happen? It happens because God, in his grace, takes you from being a slave to sin, where all you want is to fuel your pleasure and your lust and what you are after. That's, you live for yourself, you're a slave to that. And then what happens is you see the truth about Jesus. And he's unfolding all of that in Romans uh, throughout the whole book and in chapter 6. You see that, that the Lord Jesus has lived a perfect life in your place. That, that he was, you were called to be holy as God is holy and you couldn't be. But Jesus was. And that the Holy One then is put to death for you. You, you see that happen. And you see the injustice of how he didn't deserve it, you did. And when that happens to you, and you see his death on the cross, and you see the power of his resurrection, it melts your heart, it changes your heart in such a way that now you want to obey him. Why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I want to serve and obey and follow a king like that? 
That's what God's looking for, is those who are obedient from the heart. If you're a parent, listen, parents, you know this, don't you? I mean, you'll take compliance at, at times, right? Like, just shut up and get in the car. Do what I do, right? I mean, you'll, you'll take it. But, but that's, what you're, that's not what you're cultivating. It's not what you're after. It's just compliance. You're after, you're trying to train your children to obey from the heart because they want to. Right? The issue is your wanter. And, and what happens is when God gets a hold of you, you, you are obedient from the heart. You want to do his will. Not to make a big show of yourself like he talks about in Matthew 6, but just because you love him. Those who will enter the kingdom are also those who will bear fruit. The passage just before this talked about fruit, that you'll know a tree by its fruit. So we've got to talk about fruit. What is, what is fruit? Those who bear fruit will enter the kingdom. Well, the Apostle Paul gives a description of the fruit of the Spirit. He describes it this way in Galatians 5. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if, if you're belonging to Jesus, if you have faith in him, if, if he's not going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. He's going to say, I do know you. If that's happened, then you've, with, with that, you, your flesh has been crucified and your spirit is now allowed to bear these new, this new fruit. The fruit of God's work in your life. And get this, it's fruit. It's not the cause, it's the result. Right, so you look at this list. How do you know if your heart is pure? Right, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do you know if your heart is pure? How do you know if you're growing more and more in holiness? It isn't because you're a great teacher. It's not because you're a great volunteer. It's a heart thing. How do you know that? You look and say, is there this fruit? Is there increasing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Is, is that increasing? And notice it's 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 singular word, the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. They don't grow independently of each other. Right? You don't go, I got my, a lot of love and like no goodness. That's not how it works. Like my you know, it's not like a basket of, of, you know, different bushels of fruit, and one is like overflowing, and the other one's like, anything in there? This is, gro- it's all together. It's, it's one word, the fruit of the Spirit. It, it, it's all this. You're only as mature. You're only as pure in heart as your smallest description of fruit. It all grows together. And the question is not, is there a ton of fruit? The question is, is there real fruit? Is it there? Is it growing? Is it developing? However slowly. right? This is not saying those who have fully matured in fruitfulness will enter the kingdom. That's not what it's saying. It's saying those who are pure in heart, who've been transformed by the good news of Jesus, and who are now bearing fruit, they'll enter the kingdom. So you don't look at this and go, you know what, I really ought to focus on being kinder. Yeah, my kindness thing, that's low, and I'm not very patient. I should focus on... No, no, no. You focus on relating to the Spirit, saying, I, I want to know God in a deeper way. I want to have Him 
own me even more. And then out of that flows these things. A similar kind of list, you can look at this later, is in Matthew chapter 5, the first part, the Beatitudes. Just a description of a life that is yielded fully to the Lord. So that's who is going to enter the kingdom. Let's finish with this. How do you know if you're going to enter the kingdom? How do you, how do you know for you, right? I mean, that's ultimate, like, you, you care about a lot of stuff. That should be like the main question you have. How do, how do I know for sure? Like, is this just I hope, right? I mean, I talked to a number of people, and uh, a great thing to ask is just go, if you were to die right this moment, what, what percentage chance are you, do you think you'd go to heaven? 50 80, 100. I've never met anyone that said less than 50. Which just shows we assume the best about ourselves. And so generally someone will say something like 80. Well, how do you know? Well, I don't know. I'm just trying my best and, you know, leave it up to him. Cross my fingers kind of thing. You can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you will enter the kingdom. You can In fact, the whole book of 1 John is devoted to this. John says at the end of that book, he says, I've written these things so that you would know that you have eternal life. So if anything we're talking about is just jostling you and going, man, I don't know what to do with this. Maybe I'm not a Christian. You need to read 1 John. That's an important book to read. But uh, it's important to examine yourselves. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. That's a good thing. That's an appropriate thing to do. And so what I want to teach you here is a, kind of a biblical perspective on assurance of salvation. How can you have assurance? How can you have confidence that you actually are saved? That when you die, you will enter the kingdom. You don't have to cross your fingers. You don't have to hope. See, see most of the self-deception of this happens because people have an unbiblical view of assurance. Their confidence that they, became, that they were a Christian comes from the fact that they walked down front or they signed a card, or they raised their hand in a service, or they made some decision. It's called um, like decisional regeneration. Okay? That because you made a decision, you're saved. And, and that's not a full picture of, of how the Bible describes assurance or confidence. There's a way you can know. And there's three ingredients to, to biblical assurance, to biblical confidence that you're saved. Here's the first one, is right belief. So you can, as Jesus indicated already in verse 21... You can have right beliefs and not be saved, but you can't be saved if you don't have right beliefs. You've got to know who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done, uh, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, the idea that he did that in your place. You've got to believe those things. Uh, there's a lot more that we could talk about if you want to think through beliefs. We just finished a series called Doctrine, uh, 13 weeks of all kinds of important things you could believe. I encourage you to go online, look at those things, but, but right belief. And, and believing that Jesus is Lord for you. So making a decision is important, but it's not the whole thing, it's, it's part of it, okay? So you have to, so have I ever trusted Jesus? If the answer is yes, then you're on your way towards having biblical assurance. Now here's, here's the other pieces. Second one is this. So first is right belief. Second, good fruit that lasts. Good fruit that lasts. We just talked about fruit through the Spirit, all those things, are those qualities growing and increasing in your life? And is it lasting? 
Jesus told some parables about all kinds of different soils. And in a number of the soils, he talks about the word being sown into a person's heart like a seed. And in two of them, that, that, that plant grew up really quick and it appeared to bear fruit, but then different stuff happened and it fell away. But the, the one that had true life was the one that's fruits, that the fruit lasted. So is there good fruit that lasts? And listen, don't do what so many people do, which is to compare themselves to others. Well, I got more fruit than him. I'm more patient than that guy. We, listen, you can always find somebody worse than you. Always. And we, and we rush to those, well, I'm better than them. Listen, don't compare yourself to people. Compare yourself to the Scripture. And then here's, I think, a good way to know if you're bearing fruit, is do you want to obey the Lord even when nobody's looking? And do you obey the Lord even when nobody's looking? That's an indication that it's probably from the heart you're bearing fruit. So right belief, fruit that lasts. Here's the third ingredient, is the subjective affirmation of the Spirit. So this is where feeling comes in, right? Uh, the, the objective facts go before the feeling, but the feeling comes in. This is a subjective feeling. Eh? Uh, what, what Paul says in Romans 8, he, well, here's how he says it. He says, Romans 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears with our spirit that we are children of God. What he's saying here is there's these moments for the children of God where you cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is this word that means like, like daddy. It's affectionate. It means there's, this, there's these times when the Spirit is just blowing through your life in such a way that you're like, yes, I'm one of his children. It's not like that all the time. But it is like that. Not to have a spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, to constantly be afraid and wonder, am, am I a Christian? Is God against me? Is he for me? Can I really trust him? Not, no, not that. He's given you a spirit so that you would know that you are a son or a daughter of his. So if you have right belief, if you have good fruit that lasts, if there's this sense just from God's spirit testifying with your spirit, bearing witness with your spirit that you're his child, if you've got that, you can have confidence that you're saved. And if God has granted you that confidence, it should, it should thrill you. It should, it should make you thankful, right? Here's why. Because all of it's a gift, right? The, the belief is a gift. You're saved by grace through faith, not your works. It's a gift of God, so that otherwise you'd boast, right? So, so you don't go, yes, I've got assurance of salvation. I'm something. You'll know. The faith was a gift. And then the fruit is the result of the faith that was a gift. So even the fruit, you don't get to go, I get to take credit for my goodness and my self-control. And my, it, no, even that's a gift. And then this amazing gift of the Spirit being given into your spirit so that you wouldn't have to be afraid, so that you could know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a gift. Which makes your heart just thrilled with God's grace to you. But some of you are here, and you would look at that test. And you would go, I don't know. I don't know. 
I think I have the right beliefs. I don't know about the fruit. I don't know about the spirit thing. I, don't, I just don't know. If that's where you are today, let, let me tell you, you are exactly where Jesus wants you. That's his whole point in this. Don't be self-deceived. Don't be one of these people that just assumes because you're real active around here that you're in. But take this as a moment to examine yourself, to test yourself, and then to go to him and to say, Lord, you are holy. I'm not. My only hope as someone who isn't holy, my only hope for the holiness without which I won't see you is to have Jesus in his holiness, to cling to him, to go to him. That's your only hope. I hope you'll take this seriously. I hope you will examine yourself. I hope that if you're struggling with it, that you'll take some time and read 1 John. This is an incredibly important question. And you need to come to terms with it. I'm just going to tell you, I, I can't tell you, yeah, 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 oh, you're saved. Or no, no, you're not. I don't know. It's between you and the Lord to figure out, am I in the faith? Or will I hear, man, did a lot of great stuff, but I don't know you. Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones says it. He says, we must realize that what God wants and what our blessed Lord wants, above all, is ourselves. What Scripture calls our heart. He does not want merely our profession, meaning our profession of faith, our zeal, our fervor, our works, or anything else. He wants us. That's what he wants. That's what the Lord is after today. He's after you and your heart. And he longs through the blood of Jesus to make it pure so that you could see him. Let's pray together. God, sobering words. Extreme words from Jesus. I pray that we would take them to heart. That they would cause us to reflect. To think deeply. God, would you give us by your spirit the ability to see our own hearts the way you see us. And we know from your word that our heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And we know that the enemy would love to deceive us. He's the father of lies. And so I pray that you would keep him far from us. And that you would allow us by your spirit to see us as we are. God, for those who, who can examine it and, and say, honestly, yes, I, I do have assurance of salvation. Could they rejoice in you? Could they see it as a gift from you and pour out themselves to you in joyful worship, God? And, and for those who are doubting and questioning, would you, by your spirit, allow them to see what's true? God, if they're not a Christian, if they're not really changed at the heart level, would you let them see it? Would you be gracious enough to let them see it? Could they see it like wounds from a friend can be trusted? And then, God, would you give them faith? Would you allow their lives to bear fruit? Would you testify with their spirit that you are working in their lives? They are your children. God, we long for you to do that. In Jesus' name.